The TA-418 Saga by Harlow Doyle P.I. Part 1. The Starting Point Richard Maxwell walked down the hall of the building. It was just another day at work. It wasn't necessarily a cushy job, but it paid his apartment rent and put food on the table, so he couldn't complain too much. However, he couldn't shake that old, restless feeling. He walked to the elevator and pressed the down button. The doors rolled open and he walked in. He sighed quietly. He'd settled down and gotten a job at this computer software company, but it wasn't what he wanted to do. He, well, missed the times back when he was chasing Blaggard. He had a mission, a focus, a goal to chase down that was bigger than himself. It made him feel like he was worth saving. Ever since Wit had told him that, he wanted to prove that it was true. He walked into the reception area and straight for the door. Have a lovely weekend, Mr. Maxwell, said the chipper receptionist, Miss Stables. Thank you, Richard smiled politely. He walked out the revolving door and into the parking lot. He opened his car door, sat down, and started it up. As he looked over his shoulder while backing out, a shockingly familiar figure sat up. Hey, Maxwell, Richard hid his surprise. Myron, he turned around and shook his head. The one time I left my car door is unlocked he muttered. Good thing I didn't leave my keys in here, too. Jellyfish sneered. Forget your crummy car. I came for something else, anyway. Maxwell fought to stay cool and continued driving. He had a hunch where this was going, but decided to play dumb. Like what? You. Richard snorted. <laughs> you should have gone for my car. You testified against me in court, remember? Because you tried to murder me, Maxwell interjected smoothly. Yeah. Pretty gutsy move for you. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah, well, I'm settling that score. Now. Richard smirked. <laughs> Sorry, I won't go along with that. You don't have a choice. You're going to do exactly as I tell you. Got it? The way Jellyfish raised his voice told Maxwell that he was not to be denied. He gripped the steering wheel. All right, all right. Where are we going? Never mind that, Ricardo. Just do as I say. Take the next left. Ricardo glanced back and saw Jellyfish's gloved hands fingering a long knife. Chills ran up his spine. His suspicion was confirmed. He felt sick. Maybe I should have gone to the witness protection program when I had the chance. I should have known Jellyfish would want revenge and come after me. I should have... But no. I have to focus. God, help me find a way out. Everything was deadly quiet for several minutes outside of Jellyfish's occasional instructions as they drove across the Chicago cityscape. Go across that bridge over there, but not too fast. There's a cop. Ha ha, thanks God. As you wish, he glanced back at him. Seems you and I were in this situation a few years ago, Myron. Yeah, but this time there ain't nothing you can do about it, Jellyfish gloated. They were about 40 yards from the cop car now. Richard sat back and smiled. I wouldn't be too sure, he said quietly. What was that? Myron snapped. I said I wouldn't be too sure. At that moment, Maxwell slammed down the accelerator and cut his wheel hard. The tires squealed and the car swerved violently. Jellyfish flew back and crashed against the door. The car hit a lamppost. Hard. Richard jumped out and ran toward the officer. Hey, I need help. He turned around and his eyes widened. Jellyfish was running toward the bridge guardrail and then he vaulted over it. The cop spoke into his radio. Hodges, get me back up immediately. Some guy just jumped off the bridge. Over. They both ran to the edge and looked down at the river. There was no sign of him. 
Do you think he made it? Richard panted. I don't know. Hours later, after a full witness report and police investigation, no sign of jellyfish was found anywhere. Every fiber of Richard's being was tingling with apprehension. How did Jellyfish know where to find him? Did he know where he lived? Where was he now? The police found no trace of Jellyfish in the river or the surrounding area, so they could only assume he got away. He had more questions than answers, and he wasn't sure where to find them. Richard stayed at a hotel overnight. He didn't want to push his luck. If Jellyfish could discover where he worked, he could discover just as easily where he lived if he didn't know already. Maxwell was confused. He didn't know what to do, where to go, or who to go to. He wasn't sure who he could trust. Richard decided to take a walk outside to see if he could come up with a logical conclusion as to what the next step should be. He meandered for quite some time, lost in his thoughts, straight into a rough area of town. There were many abandoned buildings, and very few people lived there. The place was eerily quiet. Richard shuddered. The place gave him the creeps. He was about to turn around when he heard the sound of shattering glass. Curiosity got the better of him and quietly walked toward an old, run-down apartment complex. The door creaked open and Richard gasped. There was an old table that had fallen over with one leg kicked in. A bunch of broken bottles lay on the floor, but it was what was next to them that caught him off guard. It was a person. He was tied up and gagged. He gave a muffled cry and looked at him with pleading green eyes. What in the world? Richard walked to him, broken glass crunching under his tennis shoes. He grabbed his pocket knife and cut him loose. The man took the gag out of his mouth. We have to get out of here, he said urgently. He practically shoved Richard out the door. Run, he shouted. Run as fast as you can. They both tore off, racing down the street. They ran down to the end of the neighborhood when there came a thundering boom, a splintering crack, and a shattering crash. A huge cloud of dust overtook them and debris flew everywhere. The two darted around a corner, shielding them from the flying wreckage. Maxwell turned around with a shock, a look of shock and horror. Did it just... The man swallowed. Yes. The building was rigged to blow. Richard collapsed against the wall and put his hand over his heart. He sank to the ground and silently thanked God for protecting them. Why were you in there? He asked. The man sat down by him. His hand trembled slightly as he brushed a lock of his brown hair that fell across his forehead. I flew in here from Virginia early this morning. I was on my way out of the hotel when two masked men manhandled me into a blacked-out van. That sounds familiar, thought Maxwell. They put me in that apartment building. They started the timer on the bomb and left. About one minute later, I heard you walking by, so I kicked that old table leg in and knocked those glass bottles over. He looked Richard in the eyes. You saved my life. Thank you so much. Richard smiled modestly and shrugged. Happy to help. He felt like there was more he should say, but he didn't know what. He stood up. Should we go to the police? The man stood up as well. No, there was nothing we could have told them anyway. I'm trained to listen for helpful things, but they barely said anything. They knew what they were doing. Trained? Richard raised an eyebrow. Yes. Oh, I I'm sorry. I guess I never properly introduced myself. I'm Agent Robert Mitchell with the FBI. Nice to meet you. I'm Richard Maxwell. The two men shook hands. Mitch studied Richard for a moment. What were you doing here anyway? This area is abandoned and you don't look homeless. Maxwell chuckled. I'm not. Actually, there's a whole story behind that. But first, I think it would be smart if we get out of here. Yes, Mitch agreed emphatically. They walked through the streets of the city, talking in low voices, so as to not give out too much information to listening ears. Richard told Mitch of Jellyfish's first attempt on his life and how he ended up in the hospital as a result of it. 
He also explained that he was a key witness at his trial. My testimony added several years to Jellyfish's sentence. He hinted not so subtly that revenge was what he was after in our little run-in yesterday. And still is, as far as I know. They walked into a little corner cafe where they ordered coffee. I'm not sure what to do. They sat down in a booth by the front window. It's a perplexing problem, all right, Mitch agreed. I'm not sure there is a lot you can do. I mean, you can try to go to witness protection, but I can tell you up front that you probably won't qualify. He looked out the window and thought hard for a minute. He watched the bustle of the city on this rather dreary day. Richard sat back in the booth and thought. He stirred his coffee absently. He didn't have a lot of people he could go to. His past often lent itself to loneliness when it came to trustworthy relationships. A light bulb went on in Mitch's head. One solution does present itself, though it's not very practical. You could skip town and lay low for a while. I'm going to travel to a small town a few hours away from here, and you could come along with me if you like. It's called Odyssey. Richard's jaw dropped. You know about Odyssey? I used to live there. Mitch laughed. <laughs> no way. I lived there for a couple of years. I was even engaged to a girl. You don't know Connie Kendall, do you? Connie almost got married? <laughs> it has been a while since I've been there. And you must know John Whitaker, Richard grinned. Doesn't everyone? What a coincidence. Maxwell shook his head. No, I learned a long time ago that there's no such thing as coincidences. Mitch nodded. Wit always said that. He smiled sentimentally. Wit was always such a great example of faith in God. Yes. He was one of the first ones to show me what the love of Jesus looks like played out in my life. He remembered vividly the time he had almost died in a burning building, but Wit saved him, even though he knew all that Richard had done. He still remembered the way Wit looked at him and said, Your life is worth saving. Those words had stayed with him ever since that terrifying night. So, shall we go? Mitch pulled Richard out of his reverie. Yes. He put some money on the table and they left the cafe. They got a hold of a rental car company and found a good car. Afterward, they went to Richard's apartment. He packed a couple of bags and was about to exit his room when he stopped short. He wanted Jellyfish to know that he had been outwitted. He thought for a moment then smiled mischievously. He shoved a couple of rolled-up blankets under the cover of his bed. Ah, the old blankets for hobbits trick. They were on the road about ten minutes later. As they traveled, they talked about family, interests, all things computers, listened to music, and laughed, as though they were old friends. About six hours later, they pulled into town. Brrrring! The phone rang loudly. A bony hand picked up the receiver. Hello? The voice turned deadly. What do you mean you failed? The voice rose until it was almost shrill. I told you specifically we had to do this without a mistake to get him out of the way. Quiet. A tracking device? <laughs> it's almost like you knew you were going to mess this up or something, he said sarcastically. Well, do you have the coordinates? Okay, he scribbled them down hastily. What? No, I'll send somebody else. Yes, do get him on the line. There was a pause for several moments as he waited. Yes, I have a mission for you. You know the man you're after? Good. We have his current location in a town called... He looked at the paper. Odyssey. There was a pause. I don't care. That's your specialty. Just do whatever it takes to get him out of the way. You're listening to AIO... Audio News. Hello and welcome to AIO Audio News. I'm doing something a little bit different today. I realized that I've been talking about my 
as best as it is a fan fiction that I I wrote this year, and I realized I've kind of been, I don't know, not shirking my responsibility, I don't think that's the word for it, but kind of neglecting another fan fiction written by Harlow Doyle Pie on Instagram, and I think he or she has a blog, I forget which, but this is the TA418 saga, which Harlow Doyle Pie sent to me a while ago to look over, and I just never had the time to give my feedback on it, so I figured I might as well read through it now. It's finished. So I know I don't have to wait for the for future chapters to come out. But I figured I'd read it one chapter at a time and then see what I thought about each chapter. So first one, there's a fair bit of plot being set up. Richard and um what? Richard and Mitch, sorry. <laughs> Richard and Mitch uh being in the same episode is actually pretty fun. Or in the same story. Uh I like the setup here. I'm thinking I don't think that the I don't think that the writing is that is that terrible. It's actually pretty good. And I think it fits with the characters so far, as far as I'm concerned. I would like to see them differentiate these two characters differentiated as we go forward. Sort of see if these are the two main characters of this story. I want to see how does Richard respond to respond to controversy and how does Mitch? Because otherwise, that's one of the thing about things about fan fiction that I see a lot. They often represent the, I guess, the thought pattern of the writer and not as much the the character. But this is uh, this is good so far. I honestly, I have a hard time if I'm getting into something new like narrative form fan fiction, script form fan, fan fiction. I can I can do I can rate that, uh, but narrative form, it's a little bit different because I have to get maybe three or four chapters in before I start saying yeah this was good now nah, that wasn't that good, but no, the writing's solid as far as a fan fiction read it it reads it's it's fine, <laughs> I think I think clearly it is fan fiction because of the universe it takes place in. It's not really trying to redo anything, which is okay. And I am intrigued as to who this person is at the end. I don't know if this is Blackguard. I don't know if it's Chairman or someone else, but you know, I, I want to I wanna see it. I, I want to see what happens here. Uh, So, yeah, let's uh go ahead and jump into part two. The TA-418 Saga by Harlow Doyle P.I. Part two, moving forward. The evening was coming on when Richard Maxwell and Robert Mitchell took the exit to Odyssey. Less than ten minutes later, they walked into Wit's End. They were instantly greeted by the usual bustle, laughter, and cheer of the ice cream shop. Richard looked around. The place was almost unchanged since he had been there last. That was nearly six years ago. Mitch walked to the front counter, where Eugene Meltzner was sitting, furiously scribbling down a mathematical formula on a piece of paper. Eugene! Eugene looked up from his work with a start pushed his glasses up its nose, and then recognized him and smiled broadly. Why, Robert Mitchell! What a pleasant surprise! Richard stood there smiling shyly. His eyes brightened even more. And Richard Maxwell! This is indeed a wonderful event! Yep, same old Eugene. Thanks, Eugene. It's good to see you again, too. He looked from Richard to Mitch. Did you two come here together? <laughs> yes, Mitch replied. That's amazing! I wasn't aware you two knew each other! Eugene exclaimed. Richard and Mitch exchanged glances and smiled. They had both agreed to tell no one any more than was necessary. If in time they were required to tell Eugene of what had happened, they would, but not now. Not yet. Mitch leaned against the counter. So, how's the family doing? Oh, quite well. Katrina's working as a substitute teacher back at Odyssey Middle School. Buck has been doing very well. I think he's finally starting to feel like he belongs here. Eugene did a double take. Oh, my apologies. I suppose it has been a while since you've been here. Buck is our 17-year-old foster son. It's great that you're making an impact like that, Mitch said. 
Eugene smiled humbly. I'm quite sure God has more to do with that than I. But he does use people to accomplish his will, Mitch replied. You are very kind, Eugene answered courteously. Can I get you, gentlemen, anything? Nothing for me, thanks, Richard said politely. I'm good, too. Actually, we both need to talk to Wit. Any idea where we could find him? Mitch asked. He's up in his office. I'll page him for you. Eugene pressed a red button on the answering machine, which also doubled as an intercom. It was one of Wit's many innovations around the shop. Mr. Whitaker, there are two men here to see you. A kind voice intoned from the speaker. Send them in. They walked into the office. It was beautifully decorated. The bookcases were lined with hundreds of books, as well as a laminated nap that was framed, a ship in the bottle, and a certificate of excellence from Universal Press, along with a few other various items. There was a large bay window where the golden sunset streamed through. A solid oak desk was neat with everything in its place, but it wasn't sterile. Mr. Whitaker looked up from the paperwork he was filing out. Hello, Mitch and Richard, he beamed. When Eugene said two men were waiting to see me, I hardly expected you to. But I'm sure glad to see you both again. He walked up and embraced each of them warmly. His blue eyes, though tired, were sparkling. It's great to see you too, Wit, Richard said, smiling. He hadn't realized how much she missed the older man until he saw him again. Did you both happen to come here at the same time, or did you come together? Together, Mitch answered. I wasn't aware you knew each other. We only just met earlier today, Richard explained. How, how did you meet? Mitch laughed and shook his head. It's a long story, but it's why we're here. Wit chuckled and nodded understandingly. I've got time. Why don't you have a seat? He pulled up two guest chairs and the two men sat down, and Richard spoke up. Well, it all started when... Sometime later, they were still sitting and relaying the incredible story to Wit. He looked concerned, yet intrigued. He shook his head. It's hard to believe all this has happened in the last 24 hours. It may sound hard to believe, but it's true, Mitch said. Richard nodded in agreement. Do you have any idea what your next step is? Wit asked. Richard shrugged. I decided to go under the radar for a while to lose jellyfish, so I'll stay at the Odyssey Hotel or somewhere until I can find an apartment, and then I'll find a job. Man, this is why I hate not having a solid plan. It sounds so dumb when you say it out loud. I can think on my feet, but that doesn't mean I think things through on my feet. Wit looked at Mitchell. What about you, Mitch? I'm staying here for a few days to get some paperwork for an international criminal the police are holding here. Then another agent and I will escort her to a high-security prison in Springfield. Oh, you mean Miss... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Brings back bad memories. Let's try that again. Oh, you mean Mrs. Mado? Yes, and actually, I need to get going. I'm meeting with my contract to contact to confirm that I'm here. He fished in his back pocket for the car keys. Richard hopped up. In that case, I should get my bags out of the back of the car. A moment later, Richard grabbed his duffel bag and backpack and walked to Wit. Do you know which way it is to the Odyssey Hotel? I can't remember. Do you already have a room reserved? Maxwell blinked. Uh, no, I don't. Well, why don't you come and stay at my house? I've got the room. I couldn't impose like that. You'd be no imposition. I'd be glad to have you with us. Richard smiled. Thanks, Wit. His brow furrowed. Us? He questioned. Well, I mean me, Jason, and two children, Maury and Suzu, who are staying with us for the time being. 
You have no idea how painful that line is. Later, Wit and Richard drove to the Whitaker household. They walked... Oh, now we're... I'm sorry. This is supposed to be an audiobook. Let's keep going. <sighs> they walked in. The house was very beautiful. The living room was very clean and neat, and it felt like home. There was a boy who Richard guessed was Maury. He was about 14, with light brown hair that could almost pass for blonde, with slate gray eyes. He was sitting cross-legged on the couch, entrenched in an article in National Geographic magazine. A young Japanese girl who looked about 13 drifted in from upstairs, giving a curious look at the newcomer. She was petite and fair-skinned with eyes and hair that were coal black. This one must be Suzu, Richard thought to himself. Wit introduced him. Mori? Suzu? This is Richard Maxwell. He will be staying with us for a while. Mori nodded politely. Hello. He then went back to his reading. Suzu walked lightly up to him. Here, allow me to take your bags. She spoke with a Japanese accent. Before Richard could respond, Suzu reached and took his duffel bag. He grinned. He knew what she was doing. He reached out, gently grabbed her wrist, and held up her hand. She was holding his wallet. Thanks for your help, but I think I can handle carrying my wallet, he smirked. It's not that heavy. Her eyes widened, and her mouth opened, then shut again. Maury, who had been watching all this time, put his magazine down and looked at them with new interest. Suzu, Wit reprimanded. He looked at her sternly. She looked at the floor. Sorry, I wasn't going to steal it. I was just going to see how long it would take him to notice that it was gone. Well, that's not considered a good hosting, or a good way to make friends by most standards. Maury had lost his place in the magazine by now and was watching intently. Suzu stared at Richard, impressed by his prowess. No one had ever caught her in the act before. How? How did you know? That, he paused, is a very long story, which I will not jump into right now. Let's just say I know how to do a lot of things, okay? Suzu did not look satisfied with that answer, but she shrugged and replied, Very well. Jason locked up at Triple J Antiques and got into his car, where he sank into the driver's seat. He sighed loudly. He liked working at the shop, but today was just particularly exhausting. Jillian had noticed a problem with the computer system and then attempted to fix it herself. Needless to say, that ended in disaster, because she ended up deleting the whole system. He didn't even know how she did that. What's worse, he couldn't even figure out how to recover the system. He pulled his phone out of his pocket to see if he received a text from Dad yet, but his phone was dead. Rats, he muttered under his breath. Oh well, I'll be home in no time. He started the car, backed out, and began driving, homeward bound. Jason pulled up and walked up the driveway. The sight of home was a comfort to him. The evening breeze blew the sweet scent of the roses past him. He breathed in blissfully and started to feel better. He opened the front door and walked in to see Wit, Richard, Maury, and Suzu all sitting in the living room talking. Richard grinned. Hey, Jason. Richard's Jason started. Hey, Richard. It's been a while. I didn't know you were here. Wit spoke up. Didn't you get my text message? No, my phone died. He's staying with us, Maury reported, looking up. Jason beamed. Cool. He looked at Richard. Are you passing through or on vacation? Richard smiled and held up his hands. Sorry, I'm here to stay for a while. <laughs> That's awesome. Any reason why? It's a long story, he replied. Maury studied him curiously. Did you just say that about everything? Maxwell chuckled. <laughs> no, I have a good explanation for it, I promise. Do you just say that about everything? Sorry. That night, Maury and Suzu were in their bedroom. Silver-white moonlight streamed through the slats of the closed blinds. 
Mori was lying on his side, away from his sister. Suzu was in her bed, laying on her back and staring at the ceiling. Wait, why do they share a bedroom? That's kind of weird. Lost in her thoughts. Mori rolled over to face his sister, and he rested his hand, head on his hand. I like that new guy. He's fascinating. Suzu laid there thoughtfully. Yes, he is, she said slowly. I'm wondering where he learned how to pickpocket so well that he caught me in the act. Mori gave a low chuckle. <laughs> yeah, no one has ever done that before. Not even Jason. And I'm wondering why he is here. Suzu continued. He said it was a long story. Her brother waved it off. It's just a throwaway phrase adults use to keep from explaining things. No, no, I, I don't think it is in this instance. She had that faraway look she occasionally got when she was thinking hard. Mori nodded understandingly. Oh, I get it. Your spidey senses are tingling. Suzu shrugged. Perhaps. Maybe it's nothing. If you have any revelations, tell me. Good night, sis. Mori rolled back to his comfortable side and slipped off to sleep. The next day was Sunday morning, and everyone was getting ready for the morning service at Odyssey Community Church. Mori was eating cereal and looking at the Sunday paper. Jason put two slices of bread in the toaster. Richard opened the fridge and poured himself a glass of milk. Suzu walked into the kitchen and spoke Japanese to Mori. The boy swallowed and replied to his sister in Japanese. Richard nodded his head and looked impressed. We both speak Japanese fluently, Mori explained. <laughs> That's cool. Because we used, both used to live at the U.S. Embassy in Japan, with our father, Suzu elaborated. Can you speak any languages? Mori asked him. Richard shook his head. I'm afraid not, he laughed. It's been a long time since high school Spanish. The only other language I speak is computer code. Mori perked up at this. Seriously? Richard nodded. Computers are my area of expertise. Oh yeah, that's right, said Jason. If you have the time, I could use some help fixing the computer system at the antique shop. I have all the time in the world. What's the problem? Well, an employee of mine accidentally deleted the entire system on my computer at the antique shop, and I need help recovering it. We can work on it tomorrow morning if you like. Sure. About a half an hour later, they all drove to OCC. The church was warm and welcoming, and the congregants were friendly. Jason introduced Richard to Reverend Wilson Knox, or Uncle Willie, as Jason called him. After the service, the collective Whitaker crew was out in the foyer talking with various people. Richard! Connie Kendall ran up and ambush hugged him. You've come back! Richard was taken aback by this, but he really shouldn't have been. This was just Connie. She made it her job to love everyone. It's great to see you too, Connie, he laughed. Oh, this is my friend Penny Bassett! She gestured to a petite blonde with glasses. And this is my half-sister, Jules. She gestured to a brunette girl of about 15 years. Hi. Hello. It's good to meet you both. Connie motioned to him. This is an old friend of mine, Richard Maxwell. He elbowed her playfully. I'm barely four years older than you, Connie. They all laughed. Hey, Jules, come over here. One of the teen girls from the youth group shouted across the room. Jules excused herself and quietly walked over. I need to go find Wooten. He talks with everyone, and sometimes he gets kind of lost, Penny explained. It was great meeting you. You too. She walked into the hallway. He turned to Connie. Wooten got married? Connie nodded. Amazing, isn't it? I'll say. He and Penny are quite a couple. They are great, though. Wooten really found the right one when he met Penny. It was love at first sight. That's great. Connie gave a cheeky smile. So, do you have a significant other? 
Or someone you're interested in? Richard half smiled and shook his head. Nope. Still single. <laughs> we need to find you somebody. He laughed at her and looked at her sideways. Connie, he said in mock reprimand. Connie held up her hands in fake surrender. All right, all right. They both laughed, then were quiet for a few moments. By the way, Richard said, changing the subject, is Mr. Riley here today? I thought I would say hello. Connie's usually sunny expression clouded over. Um, Mr. Riley, er, Tom? Yeah, is, he is here today, isn't he? Oh, you, you don't know, do you? She seemed to be talking more to herself than anyone else. Know what? Richard, Tom died almost five years ago. A pang of sadness and even guilt hit Maxwell. His face paled. I I'm sorry, I didn't know. It's okay. It kind of took us all by surprise. He had a heart condition, and one day he collapsed, and the ambulance didn't get there fast enough. Oh, that must have been so hard, he said quietly. Yeah, it was. I, I should have told him. How much I appreciate it. Richard choked up and felt his stroke constrict. He fought back the tears he knew were coming. Connie hugged him comfortingly. I think he knows, she whispered. Richard finally let the tears spill over. Tears brimmed in Connie's eyes, too. He sighed shakily. But I should have told him. I know it's useless to regret things you should or shouldn't have done, but... He didn't finish his sentence. I know how that feels. Wit once told me that we have to trust God, and that he will fill in all the blanks to what we should have said. Yeah. We shouldn't expect him to, though, Richard said softly. Connie gave a sympathetic smile. That's basically what I said. Richard, we're going, Susu shouted out. Coming, he called back. He hurriedly brushed away the tears with the back of his hand. He didn't want them to know he'd been crying. Thanks, Connie. It was good to see you again. Yeah, it was great seeing you, too. Richard caught up to the rest of the Whitakers as they were walking through the parking lot. Suzu noticed his red-rimmed eyes, but said nothing. Maury, however, did. Are you okay, Mr. Maxwell? I'm all right, and you can call me Richard. Wit looked at him like he knew what he and Connie had been talking about. The next morning, Jason and Richard went to open the antique shop. This is a nice place, Maxwell observed. Thanks. My employee decorated it. After the shop was opened, the two sums sat down at the computer behind the front counter. Richard quickly figured out what was going wrong and got to work recovering the deleted systems. Jason went to work in the back room. An hour later, a frazzled-looking woman burst through the front. Sorry. An hour later, a frazzled-looking woman burst through the front. I can't read this line. A frazzled-looking woman burst through the door. There we go. Look, Jason, I'm really, 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 really sorry I'm so late, but my car broke down and I had to use my curl iron to fix the- She paused and looked bewildered. Wait, you're not Jason? Richard looked up and tilted his head a little. No, I'm not. Can I help you with something? The woman seemed to melt on the spot. Oh, no, I just work here, that's all, she said in a breathy voice. Um, I can go get Jason if you need. Oh, no, 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 it's, it's okay. Um, let's talk. I'm Jillian Marshall, double L Jillian, double L Marshall. She leaned on the counter and put her head in her hands. So, are you new here? Her face had a silly grin. Richard coughed uncomfortably. What did I do? Um, I'm new to this shop, but not to Odyssey. 
Really? I didn't know you lived in Odyssey, and believe me, I would have noticed. She giggled and booped his nose. Richard jerked back quickly, accidentally tipped his chair back too far, and crashed to the floor. Ow. Jillian giggled. Oh, you're literally so adorable when you're nervous. He rolled his eyes. Literally, viscerally uncomfortable is more like it. He sat up and ran his hand through his hair. Um, thanks, he mumbled. Jason looked through the door. Everything okay? I'm fine, Richard replied. He put his hands on his hips. Jillian, where have you been? You're over an hour late. I'm sorry, my car broke down and I tried to use the curling iron to fix the toaster. She looked a little sheepish. And needless to say, I lost track of time. You need to learn to be on time if you're going to get a good job and keep it. Julian looked down penitently. Sorry. No real harm done, I suppose. She straightened up. So what should I do today? You can sort the books in the book area upstairs. Are you sure I'm not supposed to watch the counter? Yes, Jason and Richard said at the same time. All right, all right. She walked up the stairs. Jason followed. As they walked up the spiral car- spir- mm. As they walked up the spiral staircase, Maxwell heard Jillian say, Your new computer fixer guy is so cute. Do you think he'd like to go out? No, I wouldn't, Richard shouted back. Jason came back down a few moments later. Ah, uh, sorry about that. Richard waved it off. You're fine. He turned back to his work. That evening, a woman picked up the phone. Yes, Agent Sierra Roland, 0987, code Tango Foxtrot, 2362. Yes, I have made contact with her. Something she has that you need? A hard drive? A very powerful computer program, eh? Well, that's a weird name, but whatever. Don't worry. If she's got it, I'll find it. I think I botched up. First off, you're listening to AIO Audio News. Okay, now we go. I think I botched that last part. Okay, okay, so this is a one-sided telephone call. Uh, Tango Foxtrot 2362. 2362, that's Tasha Forbes. Wait a minute, so... Okay, so Tasha... So Tasha's calling Sierra Roland 0987. Is that how this works? And she's Tango Foxtrot 2362? Okay, yeah, so those last couple lines look like they're either completely uttered by Sierra Rowland or Tasha Forbes. Um, I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. Yes, Agent Sierra Rowland, 0987, code Tango Foxtrot 2362. Uh, see, I don't understand what's going on there, but that's okay. That's fine. I will say this is this is really good. This is actually really good. Um, I like the characterization. I like how terrible Jillian is. Connie is wonderful. Um, having, uh, Jules and Penny in there is actually pretty good. They're not in there for too long, so they don't get a huge amount of characterization, but I like how we're sticking with Richard. Uh, I don't see the delineation between him and Mitch. I'm wanting to figure out when that happens, but it's okay for now because Mitch isn't in this episode. It's fine. Episode part. Let's see, what happened today? Mo we met Maury and, uh, Suzu, and I gagged. <laughs> but it's, uh... I'm assuming this isn't the Moria Was Right universe. I'm wondering when this episode, when this part was released. I'm thinking this is before the team. I don't remember exactly. Anyway, no, I'm I'm happy with the way with the direction this is going. So it looks like there's an underlying plot. What was the what was the one right before that? So something she has that you need a very powerful computer program. So I'm guessing this is since this is called the TF418 saga that we're talking about applesauce, right? Right? Okay. 
hope I haven't got any spoilers from the summary or whatever. Let's see. So, there's a voice that turns deadly from a bony hand in the previous episode. And then, in this next one, it's Tasha talking to somebody. Pretty sure it's Tasha. So, I don't know. I mean, this is only a 14-parter, so it shouldn't take me that long to get through. Let's see, maybe I can do one or two more parts? Depends on if you guys are actually interested in listening to this. Hey, I'm saying it. I'm I'm the one who's here. If you're not interested, that's okay. Feel free to tune out. In the meantime, uh, this is me reading this thing, so let's keep going. The TA-418 Saga by Harlow Doyle, P.I. Part 3. Smokescreen. The door clanged behind her. Not even the first line. The door clanged behind her. Could it really be? Was she free? The warden motioned for her to follow him. This way, 97642, he grunted. The woman silently followed the man. They walked soundlessly through the bleak, dimly lit halls, through several doors, and into a reception area, which was equally dismal. The walls, on which nothing hung, were a shade of cloudy gray. It wasn't exactly a kindergarten classroom around here. But this was Campbell County Prison, for crying out loud. It was probably a building code violation to have it any other way. Low voices murmured, and phones rang, and keyboards clicked. Various people walked around, sat at desks, or talked to one another in low voices. The warden led her to a desk where she was briskly sat down in a chair. An older woman gave her a file. She had brown hair with streaks of gray and glasses perched on her long nose. The prisoner opened it cautiously hoping against hope that it was the answer she was waiting for. Inside the file, there was some paperwork. At the top of the first page, it said, Parole notice? The woman with glasses nodded. The board deemed you eligible. If you'll sign at the bottom of the page, we'll have you out shortly after your parole hearing. She offered her a pen. The woman gratefully took it and tried to control her trembling hands. She signed her name at the bottom corner. Monica Stone. An hour or so later, permission was granted for her release. She gathered her meager belongings and was about to head out the door when a different warden came up to her. He put a hand on her shoulder and looked at her with sincerity. You've been given a great gift, Miss Stone. Use it for good. Go and do something great. I hope I don't have to see you here again. Monica nodded and replied, Thank you, sir. I will. And I'll make sure I don't have to come back. Monica walked out the door and into the late spring sunshine. She took a deep breath and smiled peacefully. She was free. And she already knew her first stop. Hillingdale Haven. She took a taxi there and was and took in Odyssey's surroundings as they drove. They went down Main Street and even passed by Wits End. She had only been there one other time years ago, back when she was working for Andromeda. Another block later, they passed by Finneman's Market. The flowers were out front in the sunshine in vibrant colors of pink, yellow, red, white, and purple. The taxi weaved its way through the streets, and they passed by another place familiar to Monica, the old site of Novacom Communications, which had been turned into a Sky Feldstein news studio. After a while, they pulled up to Hillingdale. Monica thanked the driver and got out. As she walked across the parking lot, her breath began to quicken and her pulse raced. She clenched her fist and shut her eyes tightly, trying to prevent the old, horrible memories from resurfacing. They flashed across her synapses anyway. 
the memories of the diving accident. She was vacationing in Florida, visiting her divorced father and her younger brother, Duncan. Monica had bet that Duncan couldn't drive headfirst, dive headfirst from the boat. He didn't want to, but she insisted on it. He was always more skittish about things like that, while she was the more adventurous one. He eventually gave in, and she regretted that moment ever since. The water was too shallow, and Duncan hit his head. She and her mother and father spent the next few terrifying days in the hospital, fearing for Duncan's life. Duncan was in a coma for several days, but he recovered from that. But he never gained back the use of his arms or legs. He was quadriplegic, and it was her fault. Monica opened her eyes, and she stopped dead in her tracks. She couldn't face Duncan yet. What if she had gone too far? She was already responsible for his condition. She couldn't just waltz in there on parole after being gone for years, serving a prison sentence. She had done too much. She turned around and began walking away. She wasn't sure where she should go now. She had no one to go to. Well, she did know someone. Jason Whitaker. Monica decided to find him. She remembered he'd said on one of his visits that he was running an antique shop, but she didn't know where. She began walking. She walked and entered a nearby shop. Excuse me? Yes? The cashier asked. Can I help you? Yes, do you know where J&J Antique Shop is? Yes, just down this street by Hal's Diner. Then two streets over. You can't miss it. Thank you very much. No problem. Ten minutes later, she walked into the shop. It was cozy and uniquely decorated. A good-looking man with thick, dark brown hair and soft brown eyes to match was sitting behind the computer, sorry, behind the counter at a computer, intensely focused on his work. Hello? He looked up from his work with a start. Oh, hello. May I help you? Yes, I'm looking for Jason Whitaker. This is his shop, right? Yeah, he's in the back. He stood up and turned to the back room. He opened the door and peeked in. Jason? Someone's here to see you. Jason walked out, cleaning his hands with a cloth. Thanks, Richard. He gasped. Monica? The corners of her mouth turned up. Hi, Jason. His hands started to fidget slightly. How, how are you? I feel better than I have in a long time. I guess that's the way you feel when you first get on parole. Jason grinned. Oh, that's great. Richard smiled broadly. Congratulations. He remembered how it felt. Thanks. Monica smiled quietly. But I need to talk to you, Jason, about the next steps. I thought you might be able to help me. Jillian scampered down the spiral staircase as they were walking away. I'll be happy to do what I can, Jason replied. And if you need help with finding a job, my dad can help. He knows lots of the local business owners, and they walked into the back room. Jillian signaled to Richard to be quiet and tiptoed over, placing her ear against the door. What are you doing? Richard hissed. Shh, I'm trying to hear what they're saying. That's eavesdropping. She looked at him like he was crazy. I'm not dropping anything. I'm trying to listen in on what they're talking about. That's what eavesdropping is. Maxwell looked at her sternly. Now back off, he whispered forcefully. Jillian rolled her eyes. Fine, fine. You're no fun, you know that? Richard's face didn't change. He sat back and crossed his arms. As opposed to an hour ago, when I was adorable and eligible for dinner out, he fired back. Jillian knew he had won. She huffed and stalked off, her six-inch high heels clicking on the wood floor. The door opened squeakily. Jellyfish's heavy footsteps echoed into the deserted building. He walked down the dark halls, dank halls. The place smelled of sheetrock and ceiling texture, as though it had not been lived in or used in a long time. He walked up two flights of stairs, down another corridor, all the way down to the third door on the right. He opened it cautiously. 
a man was sitting in a swivel chair with his back turned to him. Jellyfish, I presume? The voice was oily and malevolent. Yeah, um, I'm reporting in. You're late. He set his computer case down. Well, I had some trouble getting here. The police got on my tail, and I had to disappear for a couple days to allow my trail to get cold, as they say. <laughs> Pretty clever if I do say so myself. He smiled smugly. Hmm. The man replied disinterestedly. But did you make contact? Yeah. And you know what to do. He said you would tell me what to do. The man heaved a sigh and turned around. The swivel shirt squeaked a bit as it rotated. Very well. He motioned for Jelly's fish to come to his desk. He opened his computer and clicked on a video file. It seemed like security camera footage. The video showed a, gra showed a rather grainy video of a man going inside a building. About 30 seconds later, he and another man came out of the building, running like the devil was chasing them. Six seconds later, the building blew up. The camera's view was almost immediately obscured by dust. Jellyfish nodded, impressed. You don't kid around, do ya? The camera was just a plan for the possible contingency our man would escape, and it worked. The man escaped. He huffed exasperatedly. Don't you just hate it when civilians get involved? Why do you want this guy, anyway? The boss wants him out of the way. He is a contingency in himself. He caught on to us the first time and blew up the whole operation from the inside. He did it once, and it's a very real possibility he'll do it again. He's an FBI agent, so he's even better equipped than he was the first time. His name is Robert Mitchell. I'll play the clip again in slow motion. This next time, Jellyfish watched more closely, trying to memorize his Mitch Mitch's appearance as well as he could from the video. But it was the other man who caught his attention. His eyes nearly popped out of his head. Maxwell, he muttered confusedly. But that ain't possible. You know the civilian? Yeah, he's the reason I had the run-in with the police. The man's brow furrowed and he scowled. What did you do to draw his attention? Did you act aggressively towards him in any way? It was supposed to be a simple job. It was just a little thank you for landing me in the slammer a few years ago. He was a witness? The man questioned. His voice grew in intensity. Key, Jellyfish replied. That was a terribly stupid move. Now you have the police after you, he nearly shouted. Myron held up his hands defensively. It was supposed to be an easy job. The sweet taste of revenge and no more. The man's oily voice turned malicious. But it wasn't. Cool your jets. It's not like they put an APB out on me. It's only bad if I'm going back to Chicago, right? You most certainly will not be going back to Chicago now. But that was never the plan for you. Not right now, anyhow. And you can be sure I'll find where this Maxwell is. I'll send someone. You won't need to worry about him. So what am I gonna do exactly? You need to keep Mitchell out of the way. Wreak a little havoc. Jellyfish smirked. That'll be no problem. He stood up to leave and picked up his computer case. He opened the door and was about to walk out. And Jellyfish? He spoke up once more. He turned to face the man. Uh, yeah? The man's voice grew evil again. Don't even think about compromising this mission. Um, sure, Mr. Charles. What a dream of it. Jellyfish walked out. Myron's footsteps echoed down the nearly deserted hallways. He wondered if Charles knew about the computer he had back when he worked for Blackguard. He couldn't possibly know, could he? Who knows? Both Charles and the boss could get just about any information they wanted. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility. 
However, Jellyfish knew it would be better for him if he kept records and covered his bases. Besides, what they didn't know wouldn't hurt them, right? But for now, he had to figure out how to keep Mitchell out of the way so they could complete their mission. What was their mission, anyway? He didn't know, and at this moment, it wasn't his concern. Tasha Forbes scooted back from her desk and stretched out. She looked dazedly out the window, taking in the Washington, D.C. skyline. The dull hubbub of traffic hummed at the, at the road three floors down. She had been working on paperwork for Mrs. Mado to send to some FBI agents who were in Odyssey so they could escort her to a high-security prison in Springfield. She could hear her co-worker walk into her cubicle. She rolled her eyes and ran her hand through her auburn hair. Oh, no, she murmured under her breath. Agent Sierra Roland could be a real pill. Tasha could tell by the way she was walking that she was not in a good mood. She straightened up and put on her best, polite, indifferent face. Roland walked in. She wore tall high heels, khaki slacks, and a white, wrinkless collared shirt. She frowned coldly. Forbes! She always talked this way when she was in her all-business mode. Yes? Tasha answered warily. I'm just making sure you're getting your report finished. Yes, ma'am. Roland was by not, not by any means her boss, but most of the time she talked to her as though she was. Her presence seemed to command it. I'm nearly finished. Formado? Tasha nodded. Yes, ma'am. Sierra questioned further. Do you know who will be faxing it to them? That would be me, she replied with a hint of annoyance. Roland gave a sour smile and nodded curtly. Good. Tasha smiled politely. Sierra turned sharply and walked out without a word. Tasha sighed quietly and sat back in her chair and closed her eyes, letting her thoughts wander. Roland was never much for praise or goodbyes, just like Donovan, but at the same time not like him at all. With Donovan, you could tell if he was proud of you. She was just cold. Roland was as good an agent, but needed was good as an agent, but needed work when it came to people skills. She could also be nosy when it came to work, which irked Tasha greatly. She preferred autonomy, and Roland badgering her with her seemingly endless amounts of questions was annoying. She did not know why she asked so, but it made her uncomfortable. And she wasn't sure why. She had only been working with Tasha for a few weeks, but she couldn't tell if it was just her personality. She never seemed to do that to any of the other agents. She barely cared what the other agents did, but maybe it was just Tasha for some reason? Or maybe it wasn't. Her eyes snapped open. She jerked to attention and reached downward. Tasha fingered the flash drive she kept on a keychain on her computer case. She wasn't sure why she did it. Perhaps she just wanted the comfort of knowing that it was still in safe hands. Her own. Tasha would not call herself a control freak, but she never let that flash drive out of her sight. And for good reason. Inside it lay the secrets of a very powerful computer program. It wasn't the first time she had been hunted down because of it. Could it be? She didn't want to assume anything. But Roland certainly did arouse enough suspicion for her to be on her guard, something she had not needed to do in a long time. You're listening to AIO Audio News. Oh boy, there's a lot of stuff that happens in this one. So let me let me check back. So we, fo we mostly follow Monica. So right, Mon Monica shows up, comes to talk to Jason, and then we switch to Jellyfish and Charles? That's cool. And then to Tasha. So it looks like the stories that we're tracking is worlds are colliding, and a lot of players from Blaggard and Novacom are coming together. I like this. I really, really like this. This is fantastic. Monica is characterized really well. Maybe it's just my my thoughts of her, but 
I don't know. She seems tough enough to understand what's going on. Or, like, her emotions are also complex enough. This is what I like about fan fiction is that, at least narrative-style fan fiction, is that even though we don't have the actor's inflection, we don't know these characters as well because they're the product of the authors, not necessarily Odyssey. We can see, through the narrative style, what the characters are thinking, and it gives great development to them. So for Monica to have her flashback to the diving accident when she's about to go into Hillendale Haven, Hillendale Haven, and then turns around, it makes sense for her to do that because we're tracking with her in her emotions. That's something we can't, we don't, we don't always have the ability to do in audio drama. It's something I'm working on for Woodgrove episode two, but here at least, I think this is done fan. I think this is done really well. It's fantastic. So great job, Harlow Doyle PI. I'm really liking this. I'm also interested to see where this goes because it seems like the plot is really well thought out. I appreciate that. As someone who struggled a lot to get my plot under control, I know how tough it can be. So, I kind of want to keep reading here. I'm really interested in this. I know this is getting long. I don't know how long this recording is. Let me check. Yeah, it's long. Okay, we're good. We're fine. So, um, that was part three, smokescreen. Myron's working with Charles. Uh, Taj is here. Monica's here. Maury still exists, I guess, not in this one. Anyway, let's go back. Check out part four. Is this part four? This is part four. All right, well, let's uh, let's give this a shot. The TA-418 Saga by Harlow Doyle, P.I. Part four, Rapid Fire. Buck was walking down the lane from school after football practice. He was just about to turn the corner on the street which led to his neighborhood, when he noticed Jules quickly dart around a corner behind an old building. His brow furrowed. What could she be doing? He also had noticed that she was taking a backpack with her, but not the one she normally took to school. Curiosity seized him, and he walked over and made his way down the alley between the two buildings. The red brick walls were riddled with old graffiti and posters advertising businesses he'd never heard of. He slowed his steps and tiptoed closer. Silently, steadily, cat-like. Just like Mr. Skint always used to say in his southern-accented voice, Yes, my lad, and you're my cat. Meow! Buck saw a weird, thin stream of, was it smoke? Floating around the corner that was towards the back of the building. His eyes widened, his stomach twisted. Is she? No way! Jules was frequently doing something rebellious, or against Connie's will, but this was extreme even for her. He wondered if he could should just not check this one out at all. Maybe it wasn't Jules, maybe his eyes were tricking him, or something. But no, he had to find out. He walked up, took a deep breath, and jumped around the corner. Jules! A scream escaped from Jules as she tumbled back from where she was sitting. She hit an old metal garbage can and it fell to the pavement with a crash and something dropped from her hand. Once she realized it was Buck, she put her hand over her heart and sighed with relief. Oh, it's just you, Buck. I thought you were a... Um somebody else. She looked for the item she had dropped in her panic, but Buck grabbed it before she could. He held the object in his hand. A vape pen. Jules stood up and t without a look of remorse. Buck's eyebrows shot up in alarm. His suspicions were confirmed. He swallowed arms hard. Um, Jules, where did you get this? From Vance, she answered matter-of-factly. You want to try it? No. Then I'll take that. Thank you very much. She reached for the pen, but Buck pulled it away and held it out of her reach. You're hanging out with Vance again? Maybe. Jules, don't you know by now? Jules held up her hand, cutting him off. Don't get preachy with me, she snapped. I've got enough of that at home. Buck hated it when she got this way. 
He glared at her. Why are you doing this? I'm just have it, trying to have a little fun, Buck. Fun? This isn't, Jules. This isn't right. She huffed. When did you become such a goody two-shoes? He was caught off his guard by this. I don't change the... He sighed exasperatedly. I'm not. Hmm. Oh, I don't change them. Sorry. Hmm. Couldn't tell. Jules sniffed. But that doesn't mean I don't have any common sense or I don't know what's good for me. He was growing intensely, intense, increasingly agitated by her nonchalance. Why are you acting like this, Buck? Because I care about you. And I don't want you to get addicted. Who says I'm going to get addicted? It's not like I'm on anything else. It's just vape. But it might not stop there. Trust me, Jules. I've seen addictions destroy people's lives. It's a slippery slope. I don't want that to happen to you. Whatever, if you don't want to vape, that's your decision. But just don't judge me and let me do what I think is good for me, all right? She was starting to get shrill at this point. Buck could see he wasn't going to get anywhere with her. He was in shock that Jules didn't show the least bit of guilt for what she was doing, and that bothered him. Even though it did, he didn't let his face show it. He looked at her with an impassive expression. Fine. He dropped the vaping pen. It's your life. He turned around and started walking away. Jules quickly reached out and grabbed his arm and spun him around. Listen, Buck, listen, Buck, please don't tell anyone about this, okay? Buck closed his eyes and sighed. All right, he whispered. He turned on his heel and walked away, seemingly calm. But inwardly, he was a storm of questions and uncertainty. He didn't know what he should do. Well, he did know. He had to tell someone. But surely there had to be another way. He sighed as he headed home. Just as things seemed to be looking up, he was confronted with another dilemma, and this one was arguably more serious than the other ones he and Jules had been involved in. Jules's well-being, her relationship with Connie, and their friendship was at stake now. Jason walked down the stairs leading out of his office. Okay, we'll be closing in about an hour, so you might want to wrap up your work, Richard. Sure thing, Jason. By the way, how is it coming along? He leaned against the counter. Richard scooted his chair back and stretched. Well, I want to get it the original way it was set up. It'll To get it the original way it was set up, it'll probably take, he calculated mentally, seven to ten business days? Jason smiled ruefully. You can be sure I'm paying you for this. Maxwell smiled. Much appreciated, but you don't have to. Are you kidding? For the size of this project, I'll definitely pay you. At that moment, Jason's phone rang. Oh, just a sec. This is Connie. He picked up the phone. What's up, Connie? Hey, Jason, can you come to Wits End, like right now? She asked urgently. Oh, what's going on? He queried. Well, we had a, kind of had a shipment mistake. Jason's eyes narrowed. What kind of shipment mistake? Well, the shipment arrived, and we got three times the amount of ice cream we ordered. And it's chaos. We need help moving it all. Connie was near panicking at this point. Okay, okay, Connie, I'm coming. Just hurry, Jason. He hung up. An emergency came up at wit's end, Richard. I'll be back in half an hour or so. Maxwell held a thumbs up. All right, I'll just come to a stopping point, and then I'll call you. Sure thing. Jason hurriedly ex exited through the front door, pulling his car keys out of his back pocket. Richard sat in the solitude of the shop, still working on the computers. It was dark outside by this time, and it was almost eerie how quiet everything was. No one was in the shop, not even Jillian. He might have noticed it, but he was so engrossed in his work, he paid no attention. That's probably why he didn't hear a man come in by the conveniently unlocked side door until he walked directly up behind him. Richard turned around in his swivel chair to face the man. 
He had a powerful build and towered over him. He put his elbow on the armrest, propped his head against his hand, and half-smiled. Well, how are you this fine evening? Can I interest you in an antique clawfoot couch? Or a half a wagon wheel? He said jokingly. I don't have time to play games. The man's voice was gravelly, and he spoke with a New York accent. I want to know where Mitchell is. Uh-oh. Richard shrugged. Don't know who you're talking about. I know you do. Now where is he? The man growled. Richard stood up and eyed him incredulously. I see no reason why I should tell you. I'll give you a reason, he growled. Swift as lightning, the brute punched Maxwell in the solar plexus, knocking the wind out of him. Richard gasped and took a step back. Before he could react, the man delivered a hard blow across his jaw. Maxwell stumbled back. The thug shoved him hard, and he staggered and hit his head against the counter. Blood trickled down the side of his head. Point taken, Richard muttered sarcastically. You have anything you want to tell me now? Mr. Mr. New York accent asked. The young man looked thoughtful, like he was considering his options. Hmm. Nope. The man's face flushed red behind a ski mask. He reached and grabbed Maxwell by the neck in the vice grip. He forced him up. I'll give you one more chance. He snarled. Where is Mitchell? Richard looked him in the eyes, deadpan, refusing to speak. Brownlow and Blaggard had broken in before, as he had, and he had vowed to himself that he wouldn't let it happen again. He could start to feel the grip tighten on his throat. He tried to struggle, but to no avail. It would only take a matter of seconds, and the man would crush his windpipe. Then he would be in serious danger. Stop! A woman with curly blonde hair stood in the front doorway. She held a small handgun pointed at him. The masked man dropped, looked at her, and stood if frozen, as if frozen. Drop him! She commanded. The man released the grip on Maxwell's net and da- neck and dashed away, slamming the side door behind him. Just PSA, I'm getting tired. Let's finish this thing. Richard collapsed to the floor, gasping for air. Blood ran down his face and into his eyes as he sat up unsteadily and leaned up against the front counter for support. He let out a low groan under his breath and wiped some of the blood away with his hand. The woman looked as though she was about to chase the brute down when she saw Richard's injury, and with a look of alarm, she dashed over to help. She holstered her gun and knelt beside him. Are you all right? I'm, I'm okay, he said shakily. Just a little banged up. His head burned and the wound stung like crazy. You're bleeding really bad. I have a first aid kit in my car. I'll go get it. The woman hopped lightly up, ran out, and came back. She knelt beside him again, rummaged around for a moment, and got out the snowy white gauze. She gently pressed it against his forehead to slow the bleeding. Richard looked at her. What's your name? He asked weakly. I'm Blair Duncan. She smiled. What's yours? Richard Maxwell, he replied. Nice to meet you. You too, though I wish the circumstances were better. She stifled a laugh and smiled sympathetically. So do I. Blair applied more pressure to his cut. He winced, inhaled sharply. Sorry, she apologized. It's okay, you do what you have to. He paused. I've not seen you before. Do you live here? I've only come up a couple of days. I've only come here a couple of days ago. My work transferred me here for a while. They sat there as she treated his wound. She gently held his hand and pressed her thumb against his wrist. Your pulse is normal, she muttered to herself. She studied him for a moment and ran through her mental checklist. And you show no sign of a concussion. Blair got out more gauze and some medical tape. The bleeding has slowed down a little, but you'll probably need stitches. I'll tape this gauze down until we can get you to a hospital or clinic, she explained. Thanks for your help. Are you a doctor or a nurse or something? 
It's no problem, and no, the medical field is an interest of mine, but it's not my profession. What is your profession? I'm, well, it's complicated. <laughs> my work requires me to know all sorts of things. I do computers, programming, photography, data analysis. You work with computers? That's my profession. Richard started to sit up, gasped, and clutched his side. Blair eased him back. Maybe we should call an ambulance, she said concernedly, reaching for her phone. No, no, it's okay. I just sat up too quickly. The guy beat me up pretty good. She frowned. Why did he do that? He wanted information. About what? A friend, Richard answered reservedly. He didn't think he should tell her everything. Did you know who he was? No, I'd never seen him before. Blair fixed the medical tape over the gauze on his laceration. There you go. I'll take you to the hospital, and they'll get you as good as new. Thank you for your concern, but I don't think I'll need a doctor. I think we should check just the same. That cut looks like it needs stitches. And that man was holding you by the neck. You could have seriously been hurt. I don't want to leave anything to chance. Richard nodded. Okay, then. He got up slowly and rather unsteadily. His, checked his chest ached every time he inhaled. Blair's car keys jingled as she pulled them out of her pocket. Do you need help? I'll... I'll be fine. He didn't want to admit how much he was hurting. A sharp stab of pain racked his jaw every time he spoke. An hour later, after he had been checked up by Dr. Graham and gotten several stitches, was discharged. He walked into the waiting room. The fluorescent lights made dull reflections on the white... Yeah, that's it. Sorry. The fluorescent lights made dull reflections on the white tiled floors. There were only a few people here, sitting and reading magazines, looking at their phones, or pacing around nervously. Blair, who was sitting in a chair, looked up from her phone and stood up. She smiled. How's the patient? Nine stitches, some bruises, but other than that, I'm clear. Oh, good. She paused and rolled her eyes. Well, not good, but it's better than it could be. True. He smiled. Thanks for everything, Blair. I'm grateful. She shrugged modestly. Don't mention it. You didn't have to stay this whole time. I sure, I'm sure there were a lot of things you'd rather do tonight than this. I didn't have any plans for tonight, and even if I did, I couldn't just drop you off at the curb. Do you need a ride home? No, I'll call a friend. He picked up his phone and dialed his number. Jason? Hey, I know this sounds weird, but I'm at the emergency room. Can you pick me up? Yeah, it's hard to explain, but I have a feeling that we've gotten into something big here. Work was wrapping up at wit's end. The only people who were there were Connie, Eugene, Buck, Maury, Suzu, and Whip. They still had a few more things left yet to put away, but they were getting close. As they were working, Connie pulled Eugene aside for a moment. Have you noticed how quiet Buck has been this evening? Eugene looked at her. Isn't Buck normally pretty quiet? Connie shook her head. Well, this time it seems different. Something's weighing him down. Don't you see how sad he looks? Eugene studied Buck for a moment as he worked. Well, now that you mention it, he does seem a little downcast. Well, don't you think you should ask him what might be the problem? I think he'll initiate conversation if he wants to tell me something. Connie cast an annoyed look at him. Do you really think he will? He sighed. No, I'm not sure. I can never tell with him. It's not like the quadratic formula. It's completely unpredictable. She nodded understandingly. Well, that's the way most teenagers are. You just have to take it as it comes. Yes, I suppose, Eugene answered uncertainly. Well then, we should test it out. Go ask him, Connie gently shoved him toward Buck. We? I mean you. Now go ask him. Very well, very well, Eugene muttered. Eugene walked as casually as he could up to Buck. 
Hello, Buck, he said with forced enthusiasm. Buck looked up, snapping out of his thoughts. Oh, uh, hey, Eugene. So, uh, how are you feeling this evening? Um, fine. Really? To borrow the colloquialism, I'm reading the subtext in that phrase. What? Er, you, you seem a, a little down. Buck glanced away. Oh, uh, I'm okay. Just a little tired, that's all. Are you sure? He nodded his head a little too quickly. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm alright. Eugene nodded back. Very well. But I'm always here if you need anything. Buck smiled sadly. I know. Thanks, Eugene. A short while later, the bell above the front door jingled, and Jason and Richard walked in. We're back, Jason shouted. Greetings, Misters Whitaker and Maxwell, Eugene called from the back. Richard grinned. Hey, Eugene, he called back. Wit walked up to them. Jason told me what happened. Are you all right? He asked in a low voice. Yeah, a little sore, but I'll be fine, and I'll explain everything later. Wit looked at them understandingly. Connie ran up to them. Hey, guys! She eyed his stitches. Richard, are you all right? How did that happen? I'm fine, Connie. I um, accidentally hit my head. Which is true. I had no intention of hitting my head. He didn't want to concern Connie or scare the kids. Buck tossed and turned in bed, unable to sleep. He could shake the relentless guilt that gnawed at him. No, he couldn't shake the relentless guilt that gnawed at him. He vacillated between wanting to tell Eugene and Katrina everything and not saying a word to anyone. It was true that it was Jules' life, but he also felt some responsibility as her friend. He knew that in time, it would only lead to more, and he didn't know what sort of connections Vance had. He had seen it happen way too many times, addictions destroying lives. Buck didn't want to admit it, but he felt afraid. Afraid for Jules, afraid for Connie, afraid for himself that he might lose a friend and have Eugene and Katrina angry with him for not telling them right away. Wait, that much wasn't true. Eugene and Katrina weren't like that. They were reasonable and understanding, and they welcomed it when Buck did the right thing, even if it was late in coming. From this, Buck drew some comfort. He knew, however, that this was no excuse to wait. A thought almost audibly pierced his conscience. Go. Buck sat up abruptly. All of a sudden, he felt fully awake. Go. He nodded his head in assent to the voice in his head. He knew what he had to do. Almost without realizing it, Buck started to get out of bed. He silently padded down the steps, down to the living room where Eugene and Katrina were sitting together on the couch, holding hands and reading books. Buck got down to the bottom of the stairs and cleared his throat. <clears throat> Katrina looked up. Buck, are you all right? He looked down and scuffed his foot on the carpet. I hope I'm not interrupting anything, he said shyly. Eugene smiled. Not at all. Why don't you have a seat? Katrina patted the open space on the couch next to her. Buck walked to them and sat down. He swallowed hard. Eugene, Katrina, there's something I need to tell you. It, it's about Jules. That was weird, huh? Jason commented late that evening before he went to bed. Yes, Wit answered quietly. What do you think we should do, Dad? You could check the security footage in the shop. You do have a camera in the front room of the shop, right? Yeah, I do, and that's a good idea. I'll take a look at it tomorrow with Richard. He started up the stairs. And one more thing, Wit called after him. Jason stopped short. 
Yeah? Pray. Jason smiled. Always. Love you, Dad. I love you too, son. That night at the Whitaker house, Wit sat down in the living room deep in thought. The glow of the lamp dimly illuminated the room. Everyone had already gone to bed, and the house was quiet. His gaze wandered to the bookshelf he was sitting beside. The first title his eye fell upon was The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. It was his favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. The final battle of good against evil and good triumphing in the end, even if it didn't look like they wouldn't. His favorite part of the book was when the Pevensies... Oh, actually, I haven't read this part of the book. Let me skip this. There were so many people in heaven he deeply missed. Jenny, Jerry, Fiona, Charlotte, Tom. His thoughts drifted to applesauce, and the key to the computer room that was tucked away in the other copy of The Last Battle on the shelf of his office. It was amazing how long ago that was, but he remembered it all like it was yesterday. That was one of the most incredible and difficult adventures he'd been in, and he had to wonder if they were on the brink of another. A lot had happened that seemed to be pointing in that direction. Wit knew that whatever was going on, he needed to pray. He bowed his head and folded his hands. Lord, you know what the future holds. You hold us all in your hands. I ask that you would guide us and protect us. Give us wisdom and strength to face what lies ahead. In your precious name, amen. You are listening to AIO Audio News. Now, why do you have to do that to Jules? That's a th- <laughs> I know people don't like Jules, and I know that the, the characters are at an extreme here uh, to what the authors don't like. Did you have to do that? So here's the question I have. I don't know necessarily what Buck and Jules have to do with the main plot of this story. And I'm wondering if if they're a side plot, that's cool. That's fun. But could that plot have been trimmed at all? I guess I won't know until later on, but what a lot of fan fictions do is just try to be completely comprehensive and Instead of just telling a singular story, tell an entire whole world. Just for the fan fictions that I read. Um, with Alternate Right Out, what I made sure I didn't do was bring in a bunch of characters who I didn't need. I realized it was becoming like a fan fiction when I realized I had Jillian in there and things were going weird. But with this one, I don't know. I guess I just have yet to see what Harlow Doyle P.I. has to, to say about it. Uh, I, I will admit, let me, let me see what else in here. So we started off with, with Buck and Jules, and then we're moving on to... Richard getting, oh yeah, Richard getting attacked. That's kind of, that's kind of intense. What did he want? Oh, he wanted to know the location of Mitchell. Did, did he really think that would work? I don't know. But then another question is here. Who is, who is this person? Uh, Blair Duncan. Ooh, could this be the agent who Tasha was working with? I wonder. I mean, there's got to be something else going on here. Like clearly her job is complicated. Because she works with computers, computers, programming, photography, data analysis. I bet she's an agent. Because that's what all that would, would have to do with that. And so, like, if she's working, trying to get applesauce or whatever this is, if this is what's going on, then that would make sense that her job, that would have something to do with her job. So, yeah, so I don't know. It's interesting. The writing, the writing is good. I've just read too much. I've read too much. Not not here. I've read too much fan fiction. I've listened to too much Odyssey to not think like all of this is good. But it's also my um my view again. My view of narrative fan fiction is really different than others. So 
I would say this episode is probably the weakest of the of the four, just because I don't I don't like this turn with jewels, and that's and that's it. Maybe it's fine. Maybe it works. Maybe it fits into the continuity. I I'm just not entirely seeing it here. And that's just me. There's still ten more parts to ten more. Ah, there's still ten more parts to this thing. So I'm gonna go ahead and stop. Wrap this up here. If anyone's still listening to this, uh, yeah, this has been an hour. So great, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you all. Uh, otherwise I'm, I'm glad I'm starting this fan fiction and actually giving another content creator some love. You can go check out these fan fictions at a link that I will put in the description of this post. In the meantime, you're listening to AIO Audio News.